2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. As we come to your word, we are expecting to encounter you. We expect to encounter you in and with the text. And so, Lord, would you speak a word into our restless hearts? And more than that, would you give us yourself for restless hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have not been in 2 Corinthians. I think some of you might be asking where we are, but no worries. We're going to cover that really quickly. 2 Corinthians is the fifth of the sixth major correspondence, maybe even seventh, that Paul has had with the church at Corinth. He has a long, extensive history with these people. He actually planted the church in Corinth, and up until now, a couple of things have happened. He's gotten a report to which he actually responded with uh, what we call 1 Corinthians. So he, he got a report from someone, he wrote them a letter, and we have that in our Bibles now as 1 Corinthians. And he actually followed up this letter with what he calls, quote, the painful visit, which was not pleasant. And he followed up with another letter that we actually don't have, And then after the Corinthians are coming to grips with themselves and coming to grips with Paul's message, they get this this other letter that we now call 2 Corinthians. And the point is this. Paul's long extended history with the people at Corinth, uh, these particularly troublesome people, to be honest, uh, is is now, this letter is now moving toward the end of his correspondence with them. This is perhaps his last or close to his last encounter with them and he's giving them uh, both a strong sense of who they are as a people and also giving them uh, encouragement and a, um, a, a declarative about how they ought to live now. And the Corinthians are presumably very excited about their new status as God's covenant people, but Paul is reminding them of what it actually means to be followers of Jesus. In other words, he's trying to say, here is the normative pattern of the Christian life and here's how you ought to live in light of what the gospel is. And when we find Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he's giving an explicit explication of uh, the gospel all the way up until chapter 7. And from there, he'll go on to tell them how now should we live. But here in 4, we get a very uh, unique and distinct and universally true aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that particular aspect is suffering. And there are two observations I'd want to make before we start. 
about the nature of suffering. Uh, traditionally, verse 6 is not included in this uh, kind of famous uh, chapter or, or paragraph. But I think it's important to keep it in there because from the very beginning of this discussion, Paul is going back all the way to Genesis 1-3 to frame God's character. In other words, Paul is letting God's character define his circumstances and not letting necessarily his circumstances define God's character. Second, I think that something we ought to note is that in verse 7, Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. And a question we might ask is, what is this treasure? What does that mean? Well, if we go back to the sentence before that, we see that the treasure actually refers to what Paul calls the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a lot of words, and what that means is essentially the gospel. That the treasure Paul is discussing is this glory, this knowledge of Jesus Christ, the word that comes along with him, who Jesus himself is that word. This is the gospel. And so the, the point here is that Paul is going to begin in 6 with God's character, and he'll end in 12 with a, a, a sort of gospel proclamation of sorts. But where we find ourselves today in 7 through 12 is right in the middle. And for the rest of the time, I probably won't refer to jars of clay as jars of clay, not that it's not a bad translation, but I think that the, the, the force of what Paul is getting at is that it's more of a, a breakable pot, that when a person who heard this particular language, they said, we have treasures in jars of clay, they would have heard a, a common uh, ancient Near Eastern pot that was very breakable, and I'll discuss that, discuss that more in a minute. But essentially what Paul is doing is he's saying we have this gospel in fragile pots. He is describing the experience of what it means to be a gospel carrier. And coincidentally enough, the experience of the gospel carrier is actually threefold. First, it is being afflicted. Second, it means dying while you live. And third, it means growing in the resurrection. First, to be a gospel carrier is to be afflicted. This word uh, jars, this idea of this jar of clay, is actually a, a commonplace item in every ancient Near Eastern home. It's basically as common as you and I. It's like a, a phone charger in the house today. It's so common that if it were to break, you wouldn't try to mend it. You'd just go buy a new one. Every house had these. And just as common as the fragile pot is, the jar of clay, so you and I are common in every house. Because all of us, whether Christian or not, are fragile pots. And this is Paul's driving motive. And you say, wait a second, how? Isn't it just Christians that are fragile pots? Well, if, if it was just Christians who are fragile pots, then we presumably would have heard Paul say something like, but we have this treasure having been transformed into jars of clay. But instead, he simply says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. No transformation, nothing. So perhaps you're not convinced that you are, quote, a fragile pot. No one wants to be described as a fragile pot. It's a, it's a little bit uh, maybe unbecoming or uncouth to say, yes, here I am, a fragile pot. But I promise that you have experienced what it means to be a jar of clay. You've experienced your fragility, whether you're honestly acknowledging it or not. For example, it's the reason why, in conversations, we ask how old someone was when they died in a particular freak accident, right? Oh, that guy was 52, I'm only 51. You know, it won't happen to me. That's why we say things like, that person passed away, 
or an accident happened. We say those things because the real truth hurts. To say someone died hurts. And we curb our language in this particular way because we might just convince ourselves if we say it uh, padded and non-raw that we, that we can't be touched by it. That maybe the probability that it would happen to us could be inconsequential. It's the same reason that we uh, gorge on food or we incessantly exercise or we binge drink to blackout. It's the same reason why nine out of 10 millennials can't recall the last time their phone was out of arm's length from their body, right? Uh, that's a st statistical fact, actually. Right? It's, it's that we're aware of our own mortality. And so we busy ourselves, we entertain ourselves to hide from what's real. Because I think if we're all honest, the busying and the incessant X, Y, or Z, it's is at its core trying to hide a voice that whispers, if you stop, if you stop, you might be disappointed in who you really are. And I think that voice is undergirded by another voice that is much deeper and maybe in some ways quieter and in other ways louder. You don't really control your life, do you? I think uh, Brennan Manning uh, the great kind of uh, lay theologian and proper theologian describes this, this sensation of what it means to be a human very well in a story about the famous psychologist Carl Jung. Manning writes, the story is often told of a man who made an appointment with the famous psychologist Carl Jung to get help for chronic depression. Jung told him to redu reduce his 14-hour workday to eight, go directly home, and spend the evenings in his study quiet and all alone. The depressed man went to his study each night, shut the door, read a little Herman Hesse or Thomas Mann, played some Chopin or some Mozart. After a week of doing this, he returned to Jung, very dissatisfied, complaining that he could see no tangible improvement. On learning how the man had actually spent his time, Jung said, but you don't understand. I wanted you to be, I didn't want you to be with Hess or Mann or Chopin or Mozart. I wanted you to be completely alone. The man looked terrified and exclaimed, I can't think of any worse company. Jung replied with a laugh, yet this is the self that you inflict on other people for 14 hours a day. <laughs> the, the point is this, that to be human is to be a fragile pot, right? To know weakness, that is to be human. And to actually be a fragile pot, to be a jar of clay, is to be prone to affliction. And what you're probably thinking now is, wait a second, you're just talking about psychological affliction. You're not even speaking of physical brutality. And of course, that's lumped in together with this. Paul, in this passage, is speaking of both psychological and physical affliction. There, you, you can unequivocally say that the Apostle Paul is honest about his own mental state. If you'd want to read it, uh, Romans 7 is a place to start. For example, this word struck down that Paul uses in verse 9 is probably, in today's language, best understood as depressed. And of course, the word persecuted certainly entails physical violence. And so to be human is to be a fragile pot, and to be a fragile pot is to be prone to affliction. 
And I think that a question that we all ask in the depths of our being is, is there really any hope for a fragile pot? And Paul actually gives us a surprising answer here. Paul says, yes. And to do so, he describes the Christian experience of suffering. To be a fragile pot, to be a gospel carrier, means dying while you live. And Paul's answer to this question of whether there's hope for us is, of course. Of course there is. Cheer up. You're dying. (laughs) That is Paul's answer. In verse 10, he says, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Paul is saying, for Jesus, suffering and death lead to greater life. And the same is true for you. It's very easy to say in abstract. I'm well aware. It's very easy to say suffering is good or suffering leads to something. It's very difficult to prove in reality. I'm very aware of that. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 actually addresses this issue head on. He writes in the very beginning, in verse 8 and 9, he's talking to the church at Corinth in the same letter and says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of that affliction that we experienced in Asia. Same word used here. For we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Listen to this. This is very important. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Most curious. And Paul is saying that these small deaths actually lead to or uh, have their finality in revealing Jesus to us. And a question I know that we're all asking is, why or how does that work? I think C.S. Lewis gives the best answer to this, who was, just for the record, a master of pain. He had suffered so much. And Lewis's answer is that these deaths reveal Jesus to us because we can't ignore them. He writes in The Problem of Pain, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Essentially what Lewis is saying and what Paul is saying is this, that in our dying or in our suffering, we are clutched by Jesus. And he says, let me minister to you to give you life. Now one thing that we haven't defined is really what these deaths are. What are these afflictions? What does that mean? And I'm convinced, and I think that Paul supports me here, that the primary death that Paul is speaking of comes about because of a change of allegiance. Or another way that we might say it is that this comes about from learning to love God. Right, this is why Jesus' parables, the hardest Jesus' parables, always end in or begin with, follow me. Remember the rich young ruler, sell all your belongings and follow me. He went away sad. Right? If someone asks you to carry their pack, go two miles instead of one. If someone hits you, turn the other cheek. All of these particular parables, these commandments, have to do with a change of allegiance. That no longer are we 
serving the, ten, the sinful desire to punch the person back on the other face? Do we, you know, march 800 meters and then drop? Jesus is saying to do these things because you love me. And that, I believe, is the most functional, regular experience of the Christian life, is dying because we're learning to follow Jesus. Secondarily, of course, there is physical death. Paul's very aware of this. In verse 16, which we didn't read, he goes on to say that the outer self is wasting away while the inner self is being renewed. And I would say that we're constantly reminded of our death to sin and our our physical death because of our physical decay. But Paul, surprisingly, and this is where Christianity uh, amazingly diverges from any other thought system, religion, what have you, is that he says that we do not die for no reason. That we die so that we can live because we actually get Jesus. And this, in a serious way, happens in the midst of suffering. In suffering, we are stripped of our excess, the spending stops, the distraction ceases. Like Lewis said, it it begs to be attended to. Pain needs medicine. You don't just uh, receive a gash and, and let it bleed out. And as this happens, I'm convinced, and I know that Paul is convinced too, that we begin to behold God plainly. And by that I mean that we begin to see ourselves, and on the same side of the coin, see God. At Redeemer, we often say this is the only way to grow. We took that from Calvin, who said knowledge of self and knowledge of God is two sides of the same coin. This is the growth in the Christian life. And then summed up, perhaps best, by Gregory the Great, who said, thus we are changed into the one that we see. Now, I'm fully aware that you might be, and perhaps should be, a bit skeptical and a bit angry about what I'm saying, because I'm under no illusion that suffering is very difficult, and it's not some sort of happy, clappy, uh, uh, you know, Jesus makes it better, slap some you know, dirt on it, kind of thing, and I understand. And I agree that it's a bit of an abstract idea, that if you got life-altering news tomorrow, I would, I would be very surprised and maybe a little concerned about you if you began to write a tome on the theology of pain and then say, well, uh, Jesus is working through it all, so it's all okay. That would be probably concerning, <laughs> truly. Maybe you should go see Jung. But God is not using this particular pain, is not using the pain in your life to get you to develop a theology of pain. Actually, he's using it to get you to cling to the resurrection. So the third point is that the experience of being a gospel carrier is growing in the resurrection. And here's how I'm going to say it. That Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, earlier on, I'll read it again to to refresh our memory. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And here's the key. He says, Indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, and watch what he does here. That That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Good so far. And then he says, Who raises the dead? In verse 14, 
of, of our passage for today. Paul goes on after saying this death doesn't work in us, but life in you, and says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And this is Paul's point. Paul says this uh, in another place in his writing. He says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, this is all a hoax. That nothing is sure and that we're the, among all peoples to be the most pitied. Because if the resurrection isn't real, Christianity has no validity to it. But if the resurrection is true, then now Christians sit in this pain that inevitably will come, clinging to the hope of the risen Christ. And that sounds like a, uh, a Hobby Lobby painted uh, piece of wood that you hang in your kitchen. And I think that that's because Christians often have misappropriated what hope is. We say, you know, uh, hope and love and, and, you know, patience and peace and all these sorts of things, and they're, these, they're abstract, they have no teeth to them. Christians have misappropriated hope often to be optimism. Optimism is this. It is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best for you. It's choosing in any situation to see how all of your circumstances and to say how it could possibly work out for the best. That is optimism. Biblical hope is not about circumstances. To be honest, often in the Bible, there is no shred of opti optimism, no possible hope that we could see. But people all throughout the biblical record cling to hope because it's secure in Jesus. We actually look backward to see God's faithfulness in order to have hope for the future, a hope of a future that's secure in Christ. So biblical hope is not about optimism. It's about a person. And with Paul, we say, if that person didn't accomplish what he said he did, this is all for naught. For example, this, this idea of not being optimistic about your future, to be honest and to see what is real. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel uh, illustrate this perhaps the best of anyone. Direct quote. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you know, worship me, bow down to my idol. And they say, they say I'll throw you in, in a fiery furnace. And they say, quote, well, if you, do, you know, if, if you do, so if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. That is a fact. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now catch this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we still will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Our God is able to deliver us, but if not, we're still never going to worship you. And I think another spot where this biblical hope wrapped up in who God is is displayed is in Psalm 39, where the psalmist says, And now, O Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. And the point of this is that suffering actually has a purpose. It has a purpose because we're united to Jesus, because he has suffered for us. And in our suffering, we actually begin to see him. So as we look backward to God's faithfulness in the past, we're able to look forward to the future. And along with Paul, say in verses 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down and not destroyed. And you're asking, well, what grounds does Paul really have to say that? I mean, at the time, does he even know his future? How can he say he's persecuted and not forsaken? The grounds that Paul has to say this are because of what Jesus has done for him and subsequently for you. If you want to see what Jesus has done for you in this passage, take verses 8 and 9 and replace but not with and was for you. And so the passage reads, We are afflicted in every way, but he was crushed for you. John writes, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, talking about the people that were crucified with Jesus, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Perplexed and was driven to despair for you. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt out and pr prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like dro great drops of blood falling down to the ground, persecuted, and was forsaken for you. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Struck down, and was destroyed for you. He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus came and was afflicted in every way for you. And this is what Paul means by saying we have this treasure, the gospel, and jars of clay, is that Jesus comes suffering to save fragile pots who suffer. So with Paul, we say we hold this treasure in fragile pots to show that God gets the glory because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we say, we do not suffer alone. Because with Paul, we also say, while we die, we live in him. And that is how your hope is secure. Secure in Jesus. Amen.